0: Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy.
1: Well, for the last four weeks, we've been in an unusual place on a Sunday evening. We're here really to speak about God, and week by week, we cover issues to do with the character of God. We think often about the love of God, his faithfulness, kindness, goodness, holiness, grace. For the last weeks, we've been considering exclusively God's justice, more specifically God's determination to punish sin. Of course, we all believe in justice, from the fan on the terrace, Oi Ref, to the candidate, hearing of results, I demand a remark, to the aggrieved in court, there must be an appeal. I don't know how much you follow the news. This week it's been all about justice. Valdo Callaquin from Nottingham, three victims, Barnaby Webber, Grace O'Malley Kumar, and the caretaker Ian Coates, and a demand for justice, what appears to be uh, a hopelessly lenient sentence. And then on Friday, the execution by nitrogen gas of Kenneth Smith, a hitman who murdered Liz Sennett in 1988 for $1,000. I spoke at a justice service once up in Norwich Cathedral, and all the kind of uh, judges from the Norwich Crown Court and so forth were there, and they were all dressed up in their finery. I, one of them was wearing a very fetching pair of breeches, which is part of the uniform, and a sort of cape lined in fur. And I said if he'd been wearing, court wearing something like that in, uh, in Soho, he'd probably be arrested. Not a flicker. He didn't see the funny side of it at all. And we processed in me feeling rather, rather naughty, as you do when you're with a judge. But at the service, I, I quoted from Miroslav Volf, who is a survivor of the Bosnian genocides and Yale professor, theologian. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that God's refusal to judge results in human nonviolence. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocents, it will invariably die, together with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. And God has got to Judge. And the belief that there is no ultimate judgment and no accountability gives rise to the most awful um, affairs. So our, our subject has been God's judgment, justice. Our subject has been hell. God believes in judgment. God will punish, punish sin justly. God's verdict is always perfect. There's no argument. The punishment meets the crime and justice will be done. The series arose out of my own personal studies in Matthew's gospel. For the last 12 months or so, midweek, we've been teaching Matthew's gospel and I've been studying it. And it was in November, as I was thinking about this January series, it suddenly struck me how often Jesus speaks about hell. Over 30 direct references, multiple other uh, tangential references. So Jesus believes in hell, real people go to hell, hell will be populated and hell is forever. Today, Jesus saves from hell. That's why he came. And of all the scenes in the New Testament, the one recorded in Matthew 26 is perhaps the most poignant, intense, and emotionally charged. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, there with his disciples, moments before his arrest. Three closest disciples, James, John, and Peter, there. He's in deep distress. The word sorrowful is acute grief. The word troubled is dismayed, bewildered, heavily distressed. Elsewhere we read that as he prayed, great drops of sweat fell from his head like drops of blood. But the scene described in 36 to 46 is preceded by a record of the failure of Peter at the most severe level. And so I want us to look at verse 31 to 35 where that uh, failure by Peter is predicted, and then on the other side, where the failure of Peter is worked out. So 31, Jesus said to them, "You'll all fall away because of me this night." It's written, "I'll strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered." After I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, "Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away." Jesus said to him, "Truly, I tell you, this very night before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times." Peter said. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So here is our first point, that you and I deserve the judgment of God that fell on Jesus. Verse 31, there is a quote from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah prophesies that God's shepherd, God's true king, leader of his people, will be deserted by all his followers. And Jesus insists that this will take place. And that is precisely what happened. Push forward to the other side of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Turn the page, if you would, and you'll see the paragraph entitled, Peter Denies Jesus. Here he is doing precisely what Jesus said he would do. Verse 69 and 70. Verse 70. He denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. That's when the servant girl came and said, you were with Jesus the Galilean. 71 and 72, when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. She said to the bystander, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And then 73 and 74, the bystanders come. Certainly you two are one of them. Your accent betrays you. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. So the failure of Peter is a moral failure. He lies. He lies. The failure of Peter is a spiritual failure. He denies Jesus Christ, whom he has already acknowledged to be the Christ of God. The failure by Peter is a repeated failure three times. It's a failure of courage. It's before a slave girl and just mere bystanders. It's a failure at the deepest level. He has the opportunity to reconsider. Having reconsidered, he then fails again and it's a failure of resolve. He's been warned. He said he wouldn't do it, and he still does it. It's important to realize that Peter is no axe murderer. Peter is no criminal. He's a decent man. He's a family man. We first meet Peter early on in the family business with his father, and then in due course with the home of his mother-in-law. He's an upright, independent, strong man. Some like to paint Peter as something of a a buffoon. That, I think, completely underestimates him. He is a man of action. Yes, he's headstrong and impetuous, but he's a good man, the best of men, an independent businessman. And here, on either side of Jesus' torment in the garden, we find recorded the failure of Peter. It's in all the Gospels. That's striking, isn't it? Mark's Gospel is an account written by Mark, from peter's lips and so you can imagine peter mark you must include this you must include this i did deny him matthew in my view is the earliest of the gospels and just at the point when you would expect the gospel writers trying to whitewash if you like the original disciples matthew insists we must have this included A friend of mine, I may have mentioned this before, commanded his battalion in the Helmand province in the worst of the fighting. I interviewed him down here. He's a lovely Christian guy. And I interviewed him down at the front here a few years back. And in the course of the interview, he said, you know, William, every single one of us have a dark side, something we don't like to talk about. You know, we're pretty big at trumpeting our successes. We promote our profile. One very fairly, rarely finds a post like this one. I had to write a CV this week. Yes, some of you may be rejoicing, but I'm not actually leaving. It was something completely random that I, they wanted to know a bit about me. So I had to write one of these things. And uh, do you know, there have been plenty of dark moments in my life. Did I mention any of them? No. But as we consider the moral failure of Peter, you know, all of us will have one moment or another, multiple probably, moral failure. And as we consider the failure of resolve, you know, all of us will have determined, I'm never going to do that again. Jesus says, watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation, they fail. And as we consider the failure of loyalty, perhaps those are the things of which we are most ashamed We will have let down people badly, every one of us, at one stage or another. And then there's the failure of courage on the part of Peter. He doesn't do the right thing. Most of all, the spiritual failure. He has let down God badly. So Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God saw that the heart of man was only evil all the time. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve the judgment that fell on Jesus. And by bracketing the Garden of Gethsemane with the the abject spiritual, moral failure of Peter, this reality of our human condition is highlighted. Wonderfully, Jesus satisfied the judgment of God as it fell on Jesus. And that takes us into the Garden. And as I say, it's perhaps the most poignant and emotionally charged moment in the whole of the Bible Here is Jesus, it's the night before his death. He's with his disciples, particularly the three closest. And here is Jesus anticipating what he knows is about to break with the dawn of a new day. What is it that causes such sorrow and distress? It has to be the cup, doesn't it? My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And then again, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. And then he went and prayed the same again. It has to be the cup. So what is this cup? Well, in the Bible, the cup can be used to speak of a number of things. A cup. It's sometimes used to speak of a cup. But it's also used to speak of a person's lot in life. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. And it can be used to speak of blessing that flows to us from God. My cup overflows. But more than anything else, The language of the cup in the Bible is used for the just wrath and anger of God at human sin. Jeremiah, the prophet, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Psalm 75, in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. He pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it from the dregs. Isaiah chapter 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Because God is just, so God must judge. Because God is fair, so God must judge everyone fairly. Because God must judge everyone fairly, so all sin must be punished. And because the wages of sin is God's wrath, God's anger at every infringement of his holy law demands his just punishment. But on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and judgment. He had no sin of his own, he deserved no punishment. He anticipates the cross, he goes there willingly as God the Son, the Son of God, to drink the cup of God's judgment that you and I deserve, to experience hell in our place. The cross can be described as any number of things. It is, of course, an example. It's a brilliant example of love and self-sacrifice. The cross is victory at the cross through carrying the judgment that we deserve. Jesus won victory over Satan and sin. It is reconciliation through Jesus. God reconciled to himself all things. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Above everything else, supremely, the cross is about Jesus God the Son, sinlessly perfect, carrying God's just judgment at the sin of our lives in our place. There is a technical term for this. If you're taking notes, which some of you are, it is the term propitiation. Now, propitiation is described in the dictionary as appeasement. That is not satisfactory appeasement is simply calming somebody's anger. So I'm particularly busy. I fail to remember that my wife and I have invited 10 people to dinner. It gets later and later. And when I arrive home, bright bright and bouncy as ever, having failed to remember this very important engagement, the guests have already arrived. Janet is quite understandably somewhat irritated. You've probably never seen her like that, nor have I. But... (laughs) I produce from behind my back a bunch of flowers. Calm is restored. Now, that is not propitiation. That is just calm down, dear, to God, if you like, shoving the sin under the carpet, pretending it didn't happen. Now, propitiation is the satisfactory payment for sin such that God's demand that sin be punished is rightly met. Here is a definition of what happened at the cross for you to think about. At the cross, Jesus made a sin bearing, wrath satisfying, substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. He drank the cup of God's wrath to its dregs on your behalf and on mine. It's wonderful. I referenced John Stott last week. He was uh, among the foremost Christian leaders towards the middle and end of the 20th century. What very few people know is that there was a guy called John Edison who was John Stott's equal. They worked side by side uh, with teenage kids in, in their younger years. And everybody said of John Ed that he was every, in every way the equal of John Stott in intellect, spiritual uh, stature, and so forth. John Ed gave his life to teaching Christian truth to nine to 13-year-olds. Here is one of the choruses that he wrote. Just a verse of it. Listen to it. At the cross of Jesus, pardon is complete. Love and justice mingle. Truth and mercy meet. Though my sins condemn me, Jesus died instead. There is full forgiveness in the blood he shed. It raises the question, how can Jesus' death on the cross pay the punishment of sin when hell is eternal and Jesus' death only took place in a point of time? The answer to that can be found first in the ongoing rebellion of the sinner in hell. There is one sense in which hell's punishment is eternal because the rebellious, the rebelliousness never changes. And we see that with the rich man in the power of the rich man and Lazarus. He's still in rebellion and therefore the punishment still continues. But secondly, the answer lies in the intensity of the punishment endured by Jesus and the degree to which he was punished. Here is the eternal son of the everlasting father. He has dwelt forever in perfect union with his father. And he drinks to the dregs the everlasting wrath of God against all human sin. And so there is an intensity and a completeness to what he achieves on the cross because of the nature of Jesus, the nature of God, and the nature of eternity. This raises for some the question as to whether Jesus is a willing party. Yes, we deserve the punishment that Jesus carried on the cross. Yes, Jesus paid the punishment, the wrath of God, on the cross, But now, the punishment Jesus paid, he paid willingly as part of the eternal purpose of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want us to drill down into the verses now. As we look at them, we can see that Jesus willingly, obediently, and deliberately goes to his death. He goes willingly. Verse 37, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. The flesh is weak. The second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. Leaving them, he went away and prayed the third time saying the same words. Now, you can't read those words without realizing that, yes, Jesus is acknowledging the will of the Father, but he is every bit the willing partner in the work that he is doing. It's not that the Father is bullying him into doing it or bulldozing him into into doing it. He is doing it from his own free volition and will. He does it because he wills it. An individual, quite a famous Christian Media man called Steve Chalk published a book uh, about 10 years ago in which he accused this understanding of Jesus carrying the wrath of the father as cosmic child abuse. And he did so on the grounds that Jesus was somehow not willing, did it reluctantly, forced by the father Listen to Jesus again in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to take it up again, this charge I've received from my Father. So God the Son fulfills fully the purpose and work of God the Father, but he does it willingly of his own volition and obediently. He recognizes the will of the Father. And though co-equal with the Father in all eternity, he willingly submits himself to his Father's will. And he does so deliberately, setting his face for Jerusalem, anticipating his death in Jerusalem, not running from Jerusalem, knowing that his end is in Jerusalem. And even here in this instant, rising... And heading towards his captors, he does it deliberately. The more you look at Jesus, the more, I don't quite know how to say this without sounding almost blasphemous and inappropriately patronizing, but the more impressive he is, the more magnificent he is as a human being. Think of his resolve. You see, Peter has been told that he's going to deny Jesus, Look at the resolve of Jesus. Nothing will shake him. Look at the courage of Jesus. He is about to go and face not only the hatred and humiliation and vilification of humanity, but all the wrath of God at your sin and mine. Think of all the dreadful things that happen in this world for which punishment must be due. And yet Jesus courageously heads towards that cross. Think of his integrity. His loyalty, you know, he is loyal to his disciples. Unlike Peter, he doesn't walk. He doesn't evade. Think of his obedience where you and I, the faintest flick of a switch, will wander into disobedience, total obedience. Above all, think of his love. He did it for you and he did it for me. Now, some of you won't know what I'm talking about here, but, you know, when we were kids, we used to get magnifying glasses. <clears throat> and, um, you know, if you put the magnifying glass and you get the sun, when the sun's out, I know, you know people in the Southern Hemisphere won't believe this. So the sun comes out, you know, and it does. It comes out quite strongly. And you can get, a, a, you can get the magnifying glass and you can put it in such a way that all the rays of the sun focus down into a bright Burning spot, and you can train that spot on a piece of paper, you know, in the kitchen or something like that when mum's not looking and start a little fire or whatever. I'm sure you've done it, certainly I have, and so forth. So, but it, it, it's as if at the cross, all God's just wrath and anger at all our rebellion and human sin and failure in loyalty and resolve and integrity and morality. Is focused down into one place on the person of Jesus because of his extraordinary love, so that we need not face it. And so we finish. We can be saved from the wrath of God because it fell on Jesus. Remember the beginning of Matthew's gospel? You shall give him the name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. They shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why did Jesus come into this world? To save us from hell. To save you from hell. To save our friends, our parents, brothers, sisters, colleagues, fellow students from hell. Such love. Let's pray together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Our Father in heaven, how we praise you for the extraordinary courage and resolve and integrity and loyalty and faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. We praise you that at the cross he paid a satisfactory price for our sin. And that as we come to him, trust in him, shelter under him, we can be freed from the horror of hell.
2: And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. William, I wonder if we could start with a question just about how you found it preparing for this sermon series. Hell is obviously quite a a heavy and difficult subject to cover. How has it affected you as a preacher as you've prepared to speak about it? I think in the areas that I've spoken about several times, really, I think you
1: are reminded and reaffirmed in the reality of God's sovereignty, that God will be God. And it puts us in our place. You know, our culture gives us, it's, it's Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, really. We want to take the place of God. We think we can control our own destiny no, God is the one who decides. And so that, I think, helps to put us in our place. I think the seriousness of sin, uh, you know, is there anything that is, you know, as you can't help talk about the seriousness of sin without thinking, well, are there things in one's own life? Uh, and then a deep love for Jesus. Like I said in the, you know, what I was saying just then, you just, the more you look at Jesus, the more remarkable he is as a, you know, As God, the son, the son of God. So those things and then an urgency about those. You cannot help but think of relatives and friends who are rejecting Jesus and in a desperate sadness for them and an urgency in prayer for them, really. Mm.
2: You started off the series talking about hell from the lips of Jesus, particularly in Matthew seven with the wide and the narrow gate Mm. that makes it sound a bit like more people will go to hell than go to heaven if that's right how can God claim to have won the victory over sin and death well that any any one person
1: go does not go to hell is a victory over sin you know when you stop and think about your own heart And when we think about our own hearts, uh, which are only evil continually, and all the filth that comes out of our hearts, that even one person should be rescued from hell is an extraordinary victory. But the purpose of God in the Bible is for the Lord Jesus to have a people for himself. It's what the apostle Paul calls Jesus' inheritance. When we read about the inheritance in letters like the Ephesians, we think it might be something we inherit. No, it's primarily Jesus and his people. And so the victory is that Jesus should have a people who are conformed to his likeness and giving glory to him for all eternity. That's the point of it all. Um, so that, I, I mean, I think the danger with a question like that is it can underplay the seriousness of our sin. Does God still love people in hell? Well, I think we have, can have a slightly wrong understanding of love. Does the, does the parent love the child that has to be disciplined? And does the parent love the child that has so rejected the love of the, the parent that the parent has had to cut off in one way or another. And I know parents who've had to do that. Um, And it's just the most awful, awful thing. And so is there still love, though? Well, I think there is. But we think love must mean, oh, a kind of softness towards in all circumstances. Actually, justice and judgment and right discipline and punishment is part of the love of God. So we mustn't have a Wrong understanding of love,
2: an unbiblical understanding of love. This is quite a personal question that somebody has sent in. Lots of us, I guess, will have family and friends who aren't Christian and don't believe in the gospel and therefore appear to be heading for hell. Will heaven still be heaven if we know that they are in hell?
1: Uh, Certainly it will because the justice of God is so glorious and we will see the justice of God and be thankful for the justice of God. I I thought the question was going to be around kind of what should we do? And the answer is pray earnestly for them um, and seek every opportunity to share the gospel with them, expose them to the gospel Mm -hmm. in a way that won't actually turn them off completely. Um, so you use every possible means to share the gospel with them. But the just what you notice in the book of Revelation um, is that the the saints are praising God for his justice and for his destruction of evil. Um, you, you can't miss that. It's Revelation 14, 20, 21 and 22. And, uh, and so there will be praise and thanksgiving for justice. Yeah. I think we have far too low a view of sin. We, you know, the, over and again, our problems with hell is our, our own man-centeredness and our own inadequate understanding of the horrific offense to God
2: of our ongoing rebellion. You've spoken there about praying earnestly and then sharing the gospel with those that haven't yet received it. Quite a number of questions have come in saying, asking about your second talk, Mm. where you spoke about degrees of punishment in hell, proportionate to the level of exposure that a person has had to the gospel. And a number of people asking, does that mean we should almost do it, only a little bit of evangelism with someone? Because if we share the gospel with them too much and they don't receive it, then we're almost making hell worse for them. Yes, I I want to respect
1: the questioners and say, I honour and respect you, but I also want to respond in the sort of way that Paul does, which is kind of, oh, for goodness sake. I mean, I don't really really mean that. I I think when we realise the horror of hell, you want to save a person from hell. And when you realise the purpose is for the glory of Jesus and the glory of God, you want to see a person saved from hell. And whether one experiences you know, the, the um, fifth degree or the seventh degree of punishment, it is going to be unutterably awful for all eternity. And why wouldn't you want to see a person saved from that? For the glory of God and for the sake of the individual. So I'm sorry. To, I don't mean to be rude. I'm just uh, playing the fool there. But uh, I, uh, you know, with the initial response. Yeah. But uh, I, I think let, come on. Let's think about the seriousness of what Jesus is saying. You know, what is weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity, and what is being cast out outside? I never knew you from God. I mean, it's just horrific. And I think we just don't allow those eternal realities to descend on us and imprint upon us.
2: Expanding on that idea of degrees of punishment in hell, it might not be possible to say more about that, but if hell is eternal and lasts forever and is total, being totally cut off from the goodness of God, how can there be Degrees to that experience. It sounds quite yeah. absolute.
1: Yeah, it does sound absolute, doesn't it? But the Lord Jesus does say it will be worse on the day of judgment for um, for Bethsaida and Capernaum than for. So I, I mean, I take again and again here. What Jesus does not do is give us a sort of quantity surveyor's detailed breakdown either of the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Or of hell. You just don't have it. You are told enough about it. And taking him at his word is what biblical faith is all about. And so I I want to take him at his word. And he says it will be worse. And so that suggests there will be degrees of punishment. I don't
2: think, what would you say to that, George? I think it's difficult to say more because Jesus doesn't say he doesn't spell out what those degrees are and how they might differ from each other. I think it is right. It's right to say that hell is not a pleasant experience in any sense, even in the lightest degree of that punishment. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways, I don't know if we need to concern ourselves with what the difference is between the degrees, given that fact. if hell is eternal for everyone total being totally cut off from the goodness of God for everyone I think that's probably enough enough that's all we need to know thank you a similar question on that passage I think also in that teaching in Matthew 11 Jesus speaks about if Sodom or if Tyre had seen the things that Capernaum and Bethsaida had seen they would have repented that seems to imply that God knew how they would have responded had they had more revelation why would God then have not given them that further revelation
1: I don't know and I I I, I think don't think God I mean it's there's a guy called Don Carson who's one of the kind of leading commentators on Matthew's gospel it's a point he makes And in making that point, he then says, God owes nobody revelation. And I think that's where the first of my five kind of goals in this series of the things that I think get achieved, the godness of God. You know, actually, God doesn't owe anybody any revelation. And the fact that he reveals anything to anybody is an act of extraordinary divine mercy. Um, And Jesus is commenting almost across time, isn't he? He's kind of going back in time and hypothesizing. Um, But why God didn't, I just don't know. Uh, But he didn't. And he doesn't owe anybody any amount of revelation. And we praise God for what he has given
2: us. It might be that the answer is similar to this next question in terms of just us not understanding how little God owes us and how seriously we've rebelled against him. But another common question has been, how can God punish finite, short-term sin? So sin that takes place and it's it's a finite, definite event with an eternal and everlasting Mm. punishment. That doesn't seem just when it's put like that.
1: Well, and that's the what the point I made last week that you know, I don't know how long it would take you to kill somebody. I reckon five seconds. Mm. Just warning you. But uh, <laughs> it, might take, it might take me a bit longer. Never no, I before. don't think it would take more than five <laughs> seconds. I don't think it would take more than five seconds. But then I would get a life sentence, and depending on the severity of the murder, there will be further lengths. And so again, I think it that ties into our underestimation of a rebellion against the eternal heavenly creator. So the weight of sin, this is what I think over and over again, we fail to grasp. God is the eternal creator of all the universe. Our very next breath is ours only because he gives it. Um, All eternity is ordered by him. He placed, you know, the stars, the planets and every single Um, galaxy that exists which we know nothing of uh, in his hand Mm. and we choose to rebel against him I mean that is you know we just treat sin so lightly Mm. I think and therefore we think oh wow this is just a small finite sin no I'm rebelling against the eternal creator of the universe and continuing to shake my fist at him even though he has shown me this and that and the other And then, of course, of course, it has to be an eternal punishment because he is the eternal God. And every time anybody objects that I always think you have too small a
2: view of God and too small a view of sin. Because hell is so serious, it's crucial that we understand on what basis a person will be sent to hell or not in Matthew 25, so the third passage that you opened up for us. We expect the thing that decides to be faith in Jesus, believing the gospel, but in Matthew 25, Jesus talks a lot about how we treat Jesus's little ones. Why is that the thing that Jesus chooses to talk about in that passage? Thank you. I mean... When you're reading a book, any book, you have to realize where you are in that book.
1: And by that stage in the book of Matthew, Jesus has gathered around him his little ones who are the righteous, and those are righteous because they trust in him, and the righteousness he is going to win for them on the cross. So maybe in the talk, I didn't make clear enough that from the get-go in Matthew's gospel, You know, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, The issue has been righteousness, and not a righteousness that I get by doing stuff. Because unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and tax collectors, uh, sorry, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. It's got to be a different sort of righteousness, and that sort of righteousness is actually the righteousness that Jesus wins for us on the cross making us right with him as a result of him paying for our sin. But then we are part of a whole family of the righteous. And by this stage in Matthew's gospel, the way I treat one of his righteous ones is the way I treat him. So it's much wider than simply, oh, I haven't given a Christian a cup of water. Mm. It's I've rejected a Christian and the people of God. And if you reject the people of God, hold on a second. That, that's why you know, us meeting together and encouraging one another and being you know, part of the church of Christ is so significant because this is a reflection of our love for Jesus. We love, love Jesus. We love his people. We love his family. So the little one, I hope, am I answering the question? I think I am. The little one throughout Matthew's gospel is the disciple of Jesus. I think I tried to show that last week. And as I reject the disciple of Jesus, you know, he who receives you receives me, says Jesus. And he who receives me receives him who sent me.
2: It's Matthew 10, 42, 43, something like that. So, A few questions coming in about the talk this evening. If Jesus's death on the cross satisfies the wrath of God on the sin of the whole world, past, present and future, with what wrath does God judge the people that go to hell? Uh, with the wrath of them having refused the offer that he's given.
1: Uh, Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath. Uh, I think people get in a terrible muddle about this. It, it's a kind of logician's, logician's, a logic person's question. Um, and I can understand it, but uh, to have, for Jesus to have paid for the price of the sin of the whole world and for me then to reject it means there is nothing more for me but wrath to come yeah. because
2: I've rejected the offer and love of Christ. Mm. And a number of questions asking about the line in the Apostles' Creed that says that Jesus descended into hell.
1: Oh, you can answer that for us, George, because you, you just come out of theological seminary. <laughs> they will have taught you all about that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. Well, my understanding is that... When it says descended into hell, it means Jesus descended to the dead. That is, he actually died. He didn't sort of go to the brink of death and then revive himself in the tomb after three days of rest. But he really died having been to hell insofar as he suffered the wrath of God fully on the cross.
1: Thank you. That's my understanding, too okay <laughs> right.
2: thank you very much george um a few questions on then application if evangelism is really important in light of the reality of hell is hell something we should speak more about in our evangelism and if so how um lovingly
1: faithfully um, you know the the the, the, uh, the apostle Paul says that he he is both in God, that is, he belongs to God, and he has the gospel. That's the announcement of God, and the announcement of God includes that there is wrath to come. Now you cannot read. I mean, lots of you are studying Romans. You cannot read Romans without being clear that there is a day of wrath that we currently experience just in this broken world, but that we will experience in its full fury is the language Paul uses there. So, and when Paul talks of the Thessalonians, he talks about them turning to Jesus who rose from the grave, who is able to deliver us from the wrath to come. So, He's talking about the message he preached. When he preached in Thessalonica, he spoke about the wrath to come. And if you know Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever receives the Son has life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. And so rightly, we should be talking about the judgment of God and warning people of it. And I think deep down everybody knows it because we all have a sense of justice, and you know the thing I began with the sort of oi ref, and you know we all want justice, and we know that an unjust world is entirely wrong, and therefore we expect judgment. On what basis? Why? Surely, I mean, if people like Dawkins are right, it's just dog eat dog, or cat eat cat. Preferably, but anyway, whichever one it is, um, that's what you know. That's just what it is. If if there's if DNA just is, there's no rhyme nor reason. It's survival of the fittest. Why do you want justice? So, well, if you want justice, where does that come from? And um, you know, if if there is such a thing as absolute justice, then we will face God in judgment. And what are we going to do about that? How do we think we've so I do think we need to talk about this and make it part of our conversation. I mean, what a great thing on Monday. They'll ask you what you did at the weekend. And you, we can quite easily say, oh, you know, we, we, we were hearing about hell last night and the reality of God's judgment. It was a fascinating talk. I think the speaker got it wrong on this point and this point. And, that'll, that, and they'll say, oh, why did you think he got it wrong? And then you can explain. You've got another opportunity to explain the gospel. Or you can put it the other way around and be more
2: positive. Yeah. <laughs> One final question, William. How should the reality of hell be shaping our lives? Yeah. Well, number one, uh, I mean, there are the five things that
1: I said. I'll run through them again very quickly. Um, I'll, I'll run through the five things first. God is God. You know, God will decide. And therefore, we need to recognize God as God. And, and kneel before him and acknowledge that we are not in charge of our eternal destiny sin is deadly serious and jesus says you know if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off he's not speaking literally he does none of the disciples sever limbs or put out eyes but you know if we are harboring some secret sin it is deadly serious deadly serious and it impacts eternity and so we need to take it with utmost seriousness Do you know, I hear occasionally things going on amongst the six o'clock congregation. I'm always amazed at how wonderful people are in terms of their commitment to the Lord Jesus and love of the Lord. But, you know, then things that are kind of normal people sleeping with their girlfriend, this sort of thing. You think sin is sin. That is deadly serious. It will lead you away from Jesus and into hell. So we must take this seriously, and it's not just around sex and morality; it's also around career and ambition, and all these things. These things are deadly serious. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we got stuck in some rut of a habit with substances, or you know, cut it off, deal with it, because um, hell is deadly serious. Three, the love of Jesus. I mean, I tried to help us dwell on the goodness of Jesus, and I've try- I've done that a lot over the last weeks. Um, Four, then the plight of the lost. Let's be really clear. Have you got a prayer list of those you know closely who are going to hell? Are you praying for them daily for the opportunity? And then five, um, speaking. But almost before all of that, when Jesus in chapter 11 speaks of Chorazin and Bethsaida, woe to you, immediately afterwards he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Now, isn't that beautiful that Jesus will not speak about the realities we've been speaking about without the invitation? And then will we come? Have you come? I mean, there are bound to be some people here this evening who have never actually sheltered under Jesus, come to Jesus, surrendered to him, asked him to forgive us for our sin and committed to serve him with our life to come. Now, have you ever done that? And if you've never done that, do you know, Sunday the 29th, 8th of January, 28th, thanks Linda, Sunday the 28th of January, 2024, what a great night that would be to surrender to Jesus. Why don't I say a prayer for anybody who might like to do that tonight, to escape God's judgment, to find forgiveness, to come to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that he died on the cross so that we can be forgiven and not experience the horror of hell. We recognize our own sinful rebelliousness. We come to the Lord Jesus and surrender our lives afresh to him. Please come into our hearts Forgive us our sin. And if this is for the very first time ever, we pray that you would help us to surrender to you and live all of us our lives for you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.